0: Join Roger and myself in our deep and transformational conversation with Leslie Hirschberger, my friend and colleague, and one of the top Enneagram teachers in the world today. Welcome to Deep Transformation, self, society, spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. Our guest and a long-term friend of mine, Leslie Hersberger, is with us, and she had just guided us we don't know where we're going to put the meditation in yet, but at the end of this talk or later, through a very, I think Roger called it, exquisite meditation. So we're in a deep um, meditative spot right now. And let me, let me say a little bit about Leslie. We met, I don't know how many years ago, but it was back in the day in the Bay Area, there was a graduate program for integral psychology and I was about to give a talk and it was an amazing group of people. I made friendships there. It's just sometimes you know, in you know, fifth-century Athens or a JFK and thousand, whatever it was, just people come together and create a resonance that was really spectacular. And I think during the break or after the talk, we met in the hall and we were talking, and there was just a immediate connection on on so many issues, as there is today. That, that connection has happened. So Leslie is a as a teacher she's a spiritual seeker, she's a practitioner, she's been on this journey for a long time, She's extraordinarily uh, gifted, teacher sure of the Enneagram and, and spirituality and everything that's involved in that, and I thought I was pretty good with the Enneagram, until well, I met Leslie, and I went, wow, you know, it's like you're, you're a green belt or purple belt, and you think you're pretty badass, and you meet like a third degree black belt, and like, and there's some more work for me to be done. And then for years, I had a uh, a treatment center in our home in Southern Utah, where we just fill up all the spaces we had with addicts and alcoholics. We soon built into the program. It was called Integral Recovery. And as a part of that, we would have everyone meet with Leslie to do a typing interview figure out what kind of type they were. And we would let the other students stand off and 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 observe this, and it was it was brilliant, and, and the students loved it. I think for people who are just coming out of that kind of dark phase of their life, beginning to understand yourself on a more deeper level, and perhaps why I was doing drugs was different than why my brother over here was doing drugs, and it brought that differentiation and understanding of your parents and other relationships, and it just deepened and, and made the whole program more effective. Anyway, I'm really, really glad to see you, Leslie, and be here. And I just wanted this to go wherever it needs to go. I have a a question at the end that's, you know, it's important, kind of a general question for you. So hi, Leslie.
1: Hi, John. Hi, Roger. (laughs) Really happy to be here with you. Glad we were able to do the practice.
0: Yes, indeed that's what we're all about. So is there, what's, what's kind of cutting edge for you right now? And I mean, and I know personally, if it's okay that I said, you just buried your mother yesterday and you just lost your mother. So that's a big deal. And when Roger and I met, we, I just lost my parents and he'd lost his wife. And so we just somehow connected there. It's a very, anyway, it's a very powerful process and especially for someone who's as conscious and self-reflective and wise as you are. So you might want to, Just start with that.
1: Thank you. You know, thinking about um, you know being on the podcast, and I was thinking about my mom, who was a one on the enneagram. So, if you're a one out there, the attention goes to error and correcting error. It's a it's pretty dominant. And I'll I remember one time asking a group of people, "How do you show you care?" And for my mom, it was to improve you, and a lot of attention went to improving you. And I remember when I first heard of my first Enneagram panel and listened to the ones and the suffering that was built in this type around this inner critic that took up a lot of the inner space, and that there it was just a really, really contracted type. And that's how it was for my mom. I mean, there were she had five kids. and, and five really, really different kids. And we moved all over all the time with my father's career. And everyone had different experiences of my mom. You know, we had five different moms with this one mom. Like,
0: what do you mean by contracted type?
1: Well, given your Enneagram type, we tend to contract in a certain sector of reality. You know, and when I say contract, it's a physical contraction. It's like something comes into the view of my mother with, you know, so let's just do a common examples. Her children do something that that that's that she sees is wrong. And she's going to correct it. And it's a really reflexive way of being to just to to correct. And it's so interesting to talk to my siblings. And you can really see the different Enneagram styles emerging because each one of them had a different experience of my mom and all of this correcting. And mine was different because I was approved of. Okay, so, you know, it's still it's still conditioned. Okay, but it was I was approved of. And so to to sit around and talk about that, you know, together as siblings on how we each of them different, how we each experienced my mom. But what I noticed was this undergirding for her of kindness. It was just something that was so, and kindness, she just always had a real heart for the one who was suffering, for somebody that was hurting. It just didn't always look that way on the outside. And so people in talking at the funeral, all of these people talking so much about her and just coming up, I was so moved. My brother's wife and baby died when I was 20, and there were no resources for him. So my mother started a bereavement group at our church because there was just nothing. This was like in 1980 in the Midwest. You just were supposed to, you know, the, the, the marker that you're doing fine is you're busy, and there was really no space for what what was really happening. And my mother my mother sent my brother off to a support group, and he was 26, and everybody else in there was 60, 70, in their 80s. And he was furious about that. So she decided to start. She said, "You know, we need something to help people through their bereavement." And I, I, you know, so she started a bereavement committee, and it was so practical. You know, she, she just helped people through the process. And I was on the receiving experience, the receiving end of that over the last month as they helped me with my mom. And I just kept thinking, oh, my mom started this. And this woman came up to me and said, you know, the woman who was charged with helping my family said, you know, your mother knocked on my door 25 years ago when I lost my husband and she brought me a rose. She said, I still have the rose she brought me. And it's such a privilege to be able to work on her funeral. And, you know, I who do all of the spiritual work, just that practice of somebody calling you to say you need to pick a reading. All right, now the next thing we need to do and then the next thing we need to do to just walk you through the process. It's so boots on the ground. So my mother. You know, and so that was what I wanted to bring to kind of the, the, the larger group, this kind of awareness that sometimes, you know, I didn't want to kind of wax over all of the, the ways my sibling experienced my mother's need to fix you, right? So to hold that in this space, but to also, and this is to me so much of the Enneagram work, to hold the holy perfection of a one. That's there. And there's just what I have found with so many ones. There's just this kindness that sits on top of that the kindness that they need to extend to themselves and the kindness they need to extend to others. And so, from an Enneagram perspective, where the one contracts is when there's error in the field. And so, the Enneagram gives this exquisite map of noticing there's these nine different tendencies where we, you know, we go out into the world, and in some way, you know, we contract against our life force, we contract against spiritual presence. And so it gives us something to observe. So when people first start coming to this work and working with your students, John, I don't know that it was always the Enneagram style that You know, precipitates the addiction. But boy, it sure is helpful to know what it is to shift you out and to shift you move through the addiction because you can really notice where your point of suffering is. And for the sixes, like you, it's faith in the world, faith in myself, the belief that I can trust the world.
0: And medicating that that fear, you Mm know, when you're you're on heroin, you don't feel scared. You don't
1: feel scared anymore. Exactly. So it's a it's a real psycho-spiritual integration because you're noticing the you know each type has a cognitive habit and that sits on top of a whole ton of energy of an emotional habit. For you. for you, it's fear, for me it's gluttony, like kind of excess and an excess of planning, pleasure, possibilities, all right. And so that's the emotional habit. And how does that, so when a client comes in and sits down and we start working together, you know, you can, you can start to, and when I interviewed your students, you can start to see the way it causes suffering. You can see it's a blind spot for anybody. But it also houses a lot of energy that is the energetic for spiritual conversion. And when I say conversion, it's converting the vice. So imagine a vice, almost like a vice grip of contraction for each of the Enneagram types. Okay. And as we start to bring our attention to it, and we can start to relax it and where it houses in the body, we don't have to go get the virtue. You don't have to go get courage and faith. It just starts to come online when you relax and you come back home to yourself and you give yourself a little bit of room.
0: So that advice becomes a, a strength or becomes a quality, a good thing. Yes. Like with the six, it's holy faith, you know, from all this fear and everything at some point, you go, okay. Yeah. The world's still screwed up and not safe and everything, but ultimately it's okay. It's Okay. God has an agenda, however you say that, it helps.
2: Yeah. And Leslie, there's so much in what you said. I want to see if I'm catching it, because I'm I'm the neophyte here. You and John have immersed yourself in this this work for decades, and I have great respect for it, but also limited knowledge. So but you so you said several valuable things about the Enneagram, but you also spoke to more larger principles of psychological dynamics and potential and spiritual opening etc I think at the heart of what you were saying for me anyway and I want to just bring bring these things out because each one was an important point was that they, we go through life in a kind of com- what some people have called the combustion cycle contraction and opening or contraction and relaxing releasing opening and what I heard which was a kind of an aha for me was that Okay we all go through this universal cycle but each of us has a particular kind of contraction to unique kind of stimulus and yes. so yes. that that opened something for me and you, and you in your, your meditation you did think of think of a time when someone wanted something from you it's like okay i get that <laughs> <laughs> yes but then you pointed out the the importance of Bringing awareness to the to the contraction yeah, and holding it within compassion, care, openness, receptivity, whatever positive holding pattern there is, so removing the condemnation on it and just holding it, and what I heard in there you didn't quite say this, but I, what I heard you implying was that simply in the opening to an awareness of and holding of any contraction, it tends to unravel and release. Yes. And that felt really important. And then John pointed out that not only, well, you, you both pointed out that all these contractions take energy and have a potential energy in them. And that the skillful response is inherent in the in the contraction. In the, there's an energy that can release and a kind of and with it a kind of uh self-understanding is this all feel right
1: yeah it's like it, it's like we have this sector of reality that like you said it. it, it if somebody wants something from me roger it could be a mild irritant, you know, but for you, it's an area of just of a core concern, particularly when you're focused, my type tends to scatter. So an interruption sometimes is a relief, because then I can scatter from, you know, if I'm starting to feel contracted, as I'm focusing on one thing at a time. So I have a line to five on the Enneagram, if you look at the diagram, the diagram in my perfect world, for those who are listening, who are new, if you've never seen the Enneagram diagram, it's got these nine points and arrows that what in traditional Enneagram teaching would be called integration and disintegration. I think it's a little more nuanced than that, but we have a, we have kind of a map that is, is useful. So for me to notice that I don't have the same thing as you, I have a scattered focus of attention. I am the monk of monkey mind, you know, and so it's all over the place. And so it's like squirrels, 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 squirrels. And so if I, you know, might the defense that, and each type has a defense mechanism which is the glue that holds the structure together. So mine is rationalization. So I could build a beautiful rationalization for why I didn't finish the project. And I could charm and disarm you because that's one of the qualities of the seven. You use this strategy of charming and disarming to deflect attention. That I didn't finish the project. And so to the degree that I'm aware of that, and then in with people with whom I'm in relationship, and my husband has a joke that he says, you know, I think you could, if you ever get tired of teaching the Enneagram, you could write a book of rationalizations and reframes, you know, <laughs> in any environment, feeling bad, we gotta we've got a reframe for you. All right, because that's the way you know that's the top of the defense system you works.
2: could have a best shovel. <laughs> totally.
1: you could have one for every circumstance right. in fact, I was one time I was one time at a coach training, and there was an eight which their attention goes to power and control, and she was talking about a difficult relationship with her mother. And the trainer said, can we have all the sevens in the room? And we all gathered around her, stood behind her. And she said, now, what, a coaching technique is called reframing. Sevens, can you reframe this situation for her? And it was just like popcorn. I mean, it was, it was all over. And the eights looking at us and go, like, how in the hell do you think like that? Because she's so defended against her mother, powering up. She can feel it. You are not going to affect me. You are not going to budge me. And I'm going to assert my power. And so this kind of cognitive habit of reframing was just so foreign to her way of thinking. It's not how it worked. But that's not her defense mechanism. So it's helpful to know your defense mechanism as well.
0: You know, when I first got introduced to this, I was going to JFK uh, grad school. And Helen Palmer, who was a year teacher and mentor for years, uh, was teaching us. First time she'd ever taught it. And I didn't get it after three quarters. Like, so we says, all you dummies don't have it yet. Come to my house on Friday night or something. So I went and I just started, you know, she's just, I started talking to her and she asked me questions. And she said, Oh, that's what I am. I'm a six. And I was like, A six? It was like, that was the last point. I would have chosen because, you know, I started studying martial arts early on, the military policeman. I was thought I could handle myself, you know, all of these things, and I'm not scared. And then I started going a bit deeper and it was like, oh, I'm scared of everything. I'm scared of being a success. I'm scared of being a failure. I'm scared of being alone. I'm scared of being in a relationship. I'm scared of death. I'm scared, you know, it's just like, Oh, no. And it was just I had built up this you know this false self to uh, help me get around in the world, you know, without being paralyzed. It was pretty successful for me for a while. but when it when I looked beyond it, it just everything started to kind of fall into place
1: well, and and John, if you look at you know for those of you who aren't familiar with the Enneagram, it's type six, the core cognitive habit is noticing what's go, can go wrong noticing inferences. What did they mean by that? Noticing, you know, can I, can I, who can I trust? Who can I not trust? So there's two ways of responding in the face of fear because fear is the emotional habit. And one of them is by avoiding, you know, kind of stepping back and complying with the rules, complying with the authority. The John sounds like he's a little bit more of the counterphobic environment or variety, which is in the face of fear, I'm gonna challenge. I'm gonna become a martial artist. I'm gonna join the military. I mean, it's it's. I'm gonna challenge the authority because all three head types, so all three of us are head types on the Enneagram, do have some issues in the sector of authority, okay?
2: Let me raise a qu- a question here because you're saying, uh, John, your experience is, uh, oh, <laughs> yes, there's a lot of fear. And you're sa- both of you saying that's particularly characteristic of the uh, people at Enneagram six. But I want to question: Isn't that a universal for all of us? I mean, my my understanding is, I a well, I too was shocked when I you know began psychotherapy and so forth, and found the amount of and meditation the amount of fear inside. And yet, as you know, in working with a lot of people who've done in therapy and meditation, etc., it seems like it's a universal, as far as I can see it. It the ego is grounded in and a product of fear so how would you speak to that
1: yeah so two things and john feel free to fill in you know here since you are the core fear type of the enneagram first of all that's right you know the enneagram if you look at the diagram there's the body types and the core emotion is anger okay that doesn't mean you or i don't have anger because we're not in, in the in the body center it just means it's it's the, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a moment, about the body types. For the heart types, it's sadness, because it's the image triad. I am what you think of me. It doesn't mean I'm never afraid. And for the three of us, we're the, we're the head types on the Enneagram, and the core emotion is fear. So anger, fear, and sadness would be the three afflictive emotions, and we have all three of them. But from an Enneagram perspective, we tend to have kind of an instinctive one that seems to be a driver. And, it you know, fear a lot of times sits on top of anger. Anger can sit on top of fear. I mean, those sometimes it's really almost a false distinction to be able to try to kind of tease them out. But for the sick. It's kind of what
0: you lead with, you know, that first thing.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Like my husband, who is a nine on the Enneagram, as a body type all the eight, nine, and one, and the eight is the sometimes called the protector. The nine is the peacemaker. And the one is the perfectionist. All three of them have three expressions of anger where the eight's gonna, you know, if something comes in the field where they're afraid of, you know, and they feel fear. they are going to power up. You're gonna, what you're going to notice on the outside is anger. All right, it doesn't mean that fear is not sitting underneath that. And if I'm a nine on the Enneagram, you know, I may start to numb. I can feel, in fact, nines get a lot of feedback that, you God, you look so calm on the outside. You seem so peaceful. And they'll say, God, on the inside, there's a lot of anxiety under there. But my strategy is to kind of numb. The nines anger tends to show up as stubbornness, kind of the low-grade irritation. And then for the one, it's a suppression of anger. So, they don't know they're angry. And the defense structure there is called reaction formation is when I'm not angry, I just want to improve you and I'm going to help you. So, I'll be actually particularly nice to you.
2: <laughs> well, let me push a little further, further here because uh, you're suggesting now uh, the three foundational emotions uh, fear, anger, sadness. And yet, in a number of the contemplative traditions, for example, there's the, uh, the, the idea that fear may be prior. Primary and certainly for the existentialists, uh, the idea of fear angst as as primary and the uh, other uh, painful emotions as secondary responses to that. How would how would you respond to that?
1: I don't feel like I would, you know, from the like that. I'm completely equipped to to reply to that, Roger. What I will say is this: is that what I've noticed with me, the way fear, I can speak to my own experience fear comes up for me, like at the front end, it's not what I notice. Okay, I wouldn't say it's fear. I would just say this room feels really limiting, and I want to get out of here. All right, so, so to the degree that, you know, when, I'm, when people who are coming and working with me typically aren't aware, they're not typically on the front gate, they, they might be just stepping into contemplative practice. And so what I'm really looking for in working with people is what do I see when they show up in the door? And the Enneagram is very helpful. It doesn't mean that fear is not in the building. You know, there are, there, there usually is. And the more they go inside, the more the fear starts to, to show itself. But in ordinary life, the seven is going to say, you know, I just don't want to be told what to do. You're not going to limit me. And I'm just trying to be positive. All right. They're not going to experience that as fear. So if I went in and I'm working with a young seven and I tell them they're afraid, they're going to look at me like I've got two heads. It's not fear. It's just you're a little boring and this contemplative practice is a little boring. And there's far more interesting things to do.
2: Yeah. And we have we have two perspectives we're talking about here. One is fundamental inquiry into the depths of one's being and dynamics and even, even of identity. And the other is the very practical <laughs> question of how do you work? work with people. And yes, it's obviously not going to work to bring those things in. I'd love to step back a little because we w- there's we've dove in and there are so many fascinating things we could dive in. I'd like to just step back and say, okay, so we have this the enneagram. It seems to be an incredible typology, ty- typing tool. Where would you situate it and how would you situate it within the a, a wide array of tests for typing people, and then there's the larger, even larger universe of, say, the integral framework, which we're both all familiar with, of, you know, looking at development and different aspects of self, et cetera, where, where would you situate it in the big picture?
1: Yeah, I like, I love this question. Yeah, so I would see it as, because it's identifying these placements of attention, and honestly, Roger, the when I, when we first started studying, like, the roots of the Enneagram, if you study fourth century desert mothers and fathers, you could see them talking about obstacles to prayer, obstacles to union with God. All right. And so they were identifying patterns of attention. If you read Evagrius, in fact, one of my mentors, Ginny Wiltsey, wrote a paper with Helen Palmer about this, is that, that within these desert mothers and fathers, the monks had a certain obstacle to prayer. And if you read it, or you could also read this in John of the Cross, when I was reading the dark night of the soul, these patterns are there as well. Okay, so they did begin in the contemplative traditions. All right. And so Helen, my teacher, was raised within the Catholic tradition with all its rituals and bells and smells, but she was also aware of the, you know, the contemplative arm of the tradition. She first began, though, didn't know it at first and had a you know, 30 years Zen practice, but was really aware of, you know, within the Christian tradition also that there were, there's a lot of material. It's not called the Enneagram, but there's a lot of material identifying these obstacles, What's been interesting to me is that in the past five to six years, it's it's gotten it's it's gotten an explosion of interest. and it's been in the Christian world, which honestly, I never, ever would have expected it because I was trained in the Bay Area. You know most of the people are mindfulness practitioners, Zen practitioners. And I'm sitting here situated in the Midwest trying to find what can be useful for people here that are coming here where the language of Zen is not going to be something they're going to connect with on the front end. And so that I, I have been kind of working the backdoor streams and even I work a lot in corporate culture as well with the Enneagram because it's, you know, and the front gate looking at as a, as a psychological typology. All right, that's a useful, as you said, practical psychological typology. Well, what start people start to happen, particularly people who stay with it for any period of time, is that I, all my thinking, I cognitively can't work with this type structure. It is tenacious. And not only that, is that I may even know a little bit about it, but and what I have found with a lot of the new people into it, they're over-identified with their Enneagram type. And that's what we see a lot with personality systems, you know, hey, I'm a, you know, INTJ or I'm an I, and that's just the way it is, where I feel like with Enneagram work, at least in the way I'm trained and taught, is that it actually is a vehicle for spiritual presence and for spiritual experience. Okay, but I don't always start there.
0: Right. Okay. They can start with the basic ego structures. And, you know, I mean, if you're a leader and you're working with groups, I know you have a couple of threes and a startup. is really great because they're going to do a bunch of work. And a four for, you know, being really sensitive and artistic. And so that's helpful to know at that level, but it doesn't end there. And and if it ended there, it would be like ending with ego psychology, you know, with, with no uh, transcendence. It's painful, but I think you're right. It absolutely deepens with the practitioner.
1: Right. And what I like, you know, the thing that's really interesting about it too is, is that it's typing you from your blind spots and it's typing you from the stuff that's hard to see and sometimes a little embarrassing. So when I was trained in business, Enneagram in business, I had to learn a whole set of words and language that would kind of hold that tension between pushing against the defense system. And also, you know, they're, they're working with their colleagues and finding words that were a little bit more neutral, and not as maybe even, I mean, I was trained from a, you know, a contemplative practitioner. And I say to people, if you read about your type, and you love what you're reading, you're probably not reading about your type, because it's, it's, <laughs> you know, it's designed to make it, it's it's uncomfortable, it's uncomfortable to see these things about ourselves. And so it's really, it's it's interesting to me, because I was raised by you know, a father in corporate America. I mean, we've moved all over the place. And I developed a certain skill with going into different places and meeting different kinds of people. And I'm a social subtype on the Enneagram, because within each Enneagram type, there are three ways it gets kind of where it tends to have a little more heat, these instinctual areas for the area of self-preservation, the area of social belonging and the area of sexual, you know, one-to-one relationships. I'm a social subtype, so there's a lot of juice in the area that I don't belong. So what I learned to do was to just watch people, and listen to how they talked. So when I lived in New Jersey, I called my brother Paul, and when I moved to or to Cincinnati, I would practice in the mirror. Call, Paul ball. It ended up being a skill where I started to learn how to work with different people where they are based on, you know, kind of cultural markers. And so it was, it's been helpful because when people start to come to me, it's like, which words, I mean, I, again, I'm kind of holding that, always holding that uh, paradox, you know, the tension between, you know, they have to feel a little bit of discomfort, right? And then that area, I mean, John, sixes can be tricky, because they're sorting for doubt. And so I tell them when you come in, you're going to probably doubt this typing thing. You're going to doubt this Leslie Hirschberger. You're going to doubt the Enneagram. And then you're going to start to doubt your doubt. And by the time you get in the car, you're going to be in a sea of doubt. All right. And so what you can start to observe is the doubt. All right. And start to observe the narratives you attach to doubt. So, from this big picture, it's a there's there's a there's this psychological map, but I also think from the contemplative perspective, there's the then the then it starts to you know the psychological map is a little more static, not super static, but I find that as we start to do deeper work, we have all of these qualities of being inside of ourselves, but we tend to embody one more fully based on the energetics of our type patterns and our energetic patterns of our type.
0: And sixes can develop into extremely intuitive people. They can just sense, you know, and and not doing all the mental scanning about the fear. They just kind of know to the point that it's almost a psychic as, as Helen was. And I've noticed that over the years too, that I can, I pretty much know Oh, if a person's safe or how how if I want to go deeper with this person or I scan rooms environments when I'm walking in the woods or when I go into a restaurant but yeah I don't do that so much as like I've developed a sense of just kind of this inner knowing if, if it's okay and when I was counseling for years with, it was really useful because I could you know just sense people and reflect back to them, you know, what they were experiencing. And I think that came out of that, that first thing that you were talking about, skill, not knowing, and, and eventually that can become a strength.
1: Well, that's how it is with all the Titan for sixes, since we'll stay on that example, is that you can kind of smell disingenuousness, smell, you know, somebody who's not telling that, you know, you know, I'm being on the up and up here, who's maybe got another agenda. The challenge with sixes is projection because that's the defense mechanism of your type structure is that I can feel that inside of myself and I'm projecting it onto the client or projecting it onto another person. So a six has to pay attention and get curious about projection, which we all do. And it's a universal. And then the other is the amplification of what can go wrong or the amplification of, the, of what you're seeing present. So sixes tend to amplify hazard. All right. Where I'm sitting next to you on the amp- on the, on the enneagram, where I can see somebody's somebody sits in my office, I'm noticing potential. I'm noticing maybe fundamental goodness inside of them, and so what I can miss and where there's a blind spot, right, is where it's not so good, <laughs> where where harm can be caused. That can get backgrounded in my awareness to the degree I'm present.
2: And to and to bring a couple of things together here, Leslie, you're pointing to the potentials here. And you mentioned before the possibility of using the Enneagram as a spiritual, you know, spiritually. And you also said something before that seemed to be very valuable, but it was just you know part of a, another conversation. You said that associated with each fixation is a, is a virtue, a holy virtue. And it seems like there's not a lot in that idea. Maybe you could unpack that.
1: Yes. So in one of our first workshops, we first would look at the type. All right. And kind of old language, we call it the false self, the false self system. That would be, you know, kind of more traditional language. Now people simply look at it as as a protective, now that we are understanding the language of trauma and understanding, you know, the... The the positive qualities of the ego as preserving us, you know, protective and sustaining function, is that we can start to see that okay, here, you know, there's something in this that that ends up becoming an impediment. That it's not serving us anymore, is what a lot of people would say. There's an overuse of a certain quality. So we first would teach your ego structure, and then interview panels of people through the narrative method and say just quite simply, so Roger, how do you know you're five? Can you talk a little bit about that? How does overwhelm show up in your life in a social interaction or something like that? Or can you talk a little bit about, you know, how does that show up in relationship? And so we start to unpack it through the perspective of the person, the five on the panel, the six on the panel, and what the audience is picking up, they don't know it, in their bodies is the energetic quality of these different types. A panel of five looks very different than a panel of sevens who are talking with their hands and they're all over the place and there's, a, there's often a smile on their face. A panel of sixes is going to look very, very different. All right? So the audience is now picking something up. And what starts to happen in the room to the degree that people are present and open is there's kind of this field of compassionate presence that starts to happen. It's like, oh, he's got, you know, this is as hard for, for them as it is for me, you know, to relax. So we also include within these in the narrative tradition is meditation so that we can bring people in and down inside of themselves And we do a lot of work with somatic experiencing, that the type structure houses itself in the body. When I first was trained, it was primarily the cognitive emotional habit, where we're now seeing that these these emotions house themselves in the body, and the body's having constant reactions. So I work with that as well with people. So our next one is Vice to Virtue. So now that we understand the cognitive emotional habit, we're starting to really focus because Roger, at the beginning, people wouldn't know, wouldn't know avarice, which is the vice of five. You know, that wouldn't be something that they could observe or John, you know, they may not be, they just like John said, I didn't think I was afraid, but I can observe doubt. It's easier to observe the mental habit. When people come to the vice to virtue, you know, then workshop, we start talking about the emotional vice, the emotional contraction and how it houses itself in the body. And that within that, as it starts to relax, virtue is the root word, the Latin of, you know, verse life force, the life force, a certain quality of life force starts to show up on its own. So for me, if my attention is going to you know, plans, pleasure, possibilities, ideas, this kind of thing, when I can start to relax that, that's being driven by emotional gluttony. When it starts to relax, a certain quality of constancy starts to show up. And to the degree that I'm present in my body, I'm actually able to stay present when hard shit comes online instead of fleeing instead of escaping, instead of rationalization. But what I do need is to be present inside of myself. All right?
2: And and is that the same as the perfection that, that is associated with each fixation?
1: Say more about that. Say that.
2: Well, well uh, you said earlier that, that each each fixation or point on the enneagram had a reflected or expressed or was connected to a holy virtue of some kind, and I'm trying to understand that.
1: So there would be one for each type. So for the one, all right, and if you're looking at, you know, kind of the vice to virtue conversion, (laughs) yeah. So for each one of them, they have a vice and they have a virtue. Okay. So for the one, we go from this kind of perfectionism to serenity. And if you look at the serenity prayer, It's the prayer that's including, you know, perfection in, you know, perfection in the imperfection. And so from a practical level, I'll work with ones on going out in nature and observing and just being with the imperfection in nature. And there's a beauty in that. You wouldn't say, let's, you know, move this tree to the right or to the left. You know, you're allowing. For the two, where there's this kind of inflation, the emotional habit is pride. And there's this this kind of inflation of self and it, it's a, it's a, it's, I've got to go out and, and, and get the connection. Then if to the degree that I can come home to myself, all right, the what's left is humility. You know, I let go of my willfulness to try to chase connection, to try to get you to like me, to feel, you know, I'm working you. Twos are working you all the time.
0: And twos are the helpers, right. And and it's kind of, it can be smothering too much, you know and an unhealthy two so that that helping converts into just being okay with what is and not always having to to control or fix or influence well
1: it's actually humility it's not as much okayness it's humility right putting yourself in its proper proportion you know i think for twos it's like i have to be you know significant to you to the to the chosen ones and and there's an overdoing. This is one of the one of the hard types. So there's an overdoing that I, I have to kind of work it so that you like me. So there's a lot of flattery, right? A lot of complimenting, a lot of kind of excess, almost histrionic, you know, that kind of too muchness of, you know, just to, to try to you. And so for twos is to the degree that I'm aware of that, I can start to relax it. And what's left is, you know, I'm one in the many, right? And that's humility. It's kind of on the ground. I don't have to inflate. And so when I work with twos, pride is a hard one to work with because it feels good. I mean, we've got bumper stickers talking about being proud of our children, right? So it feels good. And some of the some of them are challenging to work with because they feel good. You know, built within each one of them, there's a strength. As well, there's strengths and there's there's weaknesses. But I think if you can go around the enneagram for the three, it's deceit. All right. So what's left is authenticity. It's the self-deception. Threes typically don't know how deceptive they are because they're deceiving themselves. For four, it's envy or longing, where attention goes to what's missing in the present moment. Oh,
0: what is the virtue of threes?
1: They used to say honesty. I feel like that word can be pejorative sometimes. I find authenticity feels more accurate.
2: And Leslie, I want to inquire further here because you're now giving for each of the points on the Enneagram or fixations, as I understand this sometimes called, you're giving now the the corresponding virtue that I think you're saying can become the person's strong point. But I want to push a little deeper into the actual relationship between the the type of contraction or the fixation and the virtue that can emerge because there's in different traditions there are different thoughts on the relationship between specific kinds of contraction or if you want to use technical terms from different traditions saying Buddhism, the defilements or the The trapped, et cetera. And for example, since I mentioned Buddhism, in Buddhism, there's the idea that if you look really deeply into each of the, each of the defilement or even the so-called poisons, the fundamental root dysfunctions at the heart of all our neuroses and psychological and spiritual disease, one actually finds, if one looks deeply enough, that it is it gives birth to a particular kind of wisdom.
1: Exactly, exactly. That's exactly. That's that's accurate. Is that from a you know some might p- call it a facet of unity, facet of the one. All mm-hmm. right. Some might call it a quality of being. From the vice to virtue conversion, you know that really is almost looking at the holy ideas of the of the more of the deeper contemplative practices. I feel like vice, virt- vice to virtue conversion is a little bit more accessible to people on the front end because we can sit and we can do it in a meditation. In fact, last week I was working with a six who came in and didn't know his wife knew he was angry and he didn't know he was angry. And so he's angry. so it, it's the anger as we dropped inside was sitting on top of a lot of her. Okay. So as we started to make space in his body for the fear and, and is that he, he, you know, it's it's interesting. It's not that I don't ever feel courage, but there's a there's a quality of for sixes that when I start to relax the fear, there's a courage that I see in sixes. I mean, John, you could probably speak to that of when does courage show up in your life, where you could feel that it's different than being counterphobic. And that's the tricky part, Roger, because sometimes it's a mimic. Of the quality, right? The counterphobic that I'm strong, but I'm really contracted and I'm afraid and it's being driven by fear, is very different than a grounded sense side of myself and a grounded sense of faith that I can trust the wider field. And John, do you want to speak to that at all? well, i just
0: I just since I was very young, I noticed that in crisis, I really show up. I'm really present. I know what to do, you know, and like one time, I was a teenager, uh, about fourteen. Long story, but we we were out camping, and this one kid had camp stove gas all over me, He caught on fire, you know. And I was up in the bus, and I just knew exactly what to do to run there and and take care of that and get him. And it's just like, wow, how did that happen? And sometimes I feel more more alive and awake in crises. You know, it's like, oh, now I'm I'm in the zone. I can I can I can deal with this. Maybe not so much when life is just you know kind of a pedestrian moving along.
1: Right, right. There's a lot of energy in the crisis, right
0: yeah, and focus and, and no time for fear. just act in this case, you know this is what has to be done.
1: Right. and Roger, for you the the vice is called avarice, and it's that avarice of energy, you know that somebody is going to demand you know, too much from me or expect too little. Okay, so that's where the mind is going, you know, when I'm out in the world. And so, you know, what, what causes stress is people who, you know, don't maintain sufficient boundaries, or if I have a need or a desire that somehow is going to lead me to dependency, too much, you know, trying to get all the information I need before I can move into action in the ordinary world, or if there's a lot of emotion. And so for, a five, I can start to aware, you know, become aware of this kind of attentional pattern that goes to the intellectual domain or facts and analysis. You know, that's the, that's easier to observe that, you know, I'm annoyed by, you know, intrusions on my time and energy. And the blind spot is abundance. And the way there's a certain quality of self-deprivation that goes, that you could probably sit on a panel and talk about a time, that you receive natural support from others and you weren't overtaken.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's what we would work with. If we had a five panel, we would say, you know, can you talk about, you know, when do you kind of contract? And can you talk about a time when you were able to be fully present and allow yourself to receive support without that kind of contraction that I'm going to have to pull back and withdraw for fear I'm going to be overtaken? And it's a certain quality for fives that what one five said, it's not that I don't want to be with people. and It's not that I don't, you know, I love my friends and love interactions. I just want to know when is the beginning, middle, and end. <laughs> so there's kind of a certain quality of planning that I'm going to get overtaken.
0: Right. And what, what does that resolve to? What is the virtue that comes out of this this fiveness?
1: It's called non-attachment. Wow. Instead of detachment, the reflexive the reflexive detaching. All right. The virtue is called not attachment.
2: And you mentioned before with some people coming to coming to be able to use this, use this for a more at a more spiritual level. And we so many intriguing topics we got into along along the way, but that's where you were going at one point. And I want to bring that back.
1: So, I got very curious, Roger, especially since I, when I got into the integral world and I started to learn and really started. You know, Helen is a teacher of intuition. So, this was a part of our training, the recognition that there's higher states of consciousness, right? But this was really foregrounded in Ken's teaching. All right. And what I found very helpful was the distinction between states and stages. Yeah. And so, what I knew was that these you know these higher states of consciousness that we all have access to you know but take a lot of practice and so i was working a lot you know with people in the in their, in their world of work with people who've got children at home two and three and more children at home and you know their daily lives there was just a you know their energy was just getting pulled in too many directions so it's like so does this mean this contemplative Dimension is not available to ordinary people boots on the ground. And that was something that bothered me, you know, that I don't live in a place where I can do a two hour practice a day. It's not the nature of my life. So what about me? What about my clients? And so when I came across Centering Prayer, where the practice is 20 minutes in the morning and the recognition that by the afternoon, we're all tied up again, and 20 minutes in the afternoon, it felt a lot more accessible. Okay, so it's almost like an intermediary path. And then I came across the work of Jacob Needleman, who was, are you familiar with Jacob Needleman? He's a practitioner of the chief. He wrote a book called Lost Christianity. And he interviewed it was it was it was a game changer for me.
0: It was a very powerful book for me too, Leslie. Kind of yeah,
2: me too.
1: I brought it with me today because I wanted to share something with you because it's a really foundational this is the last paragraph of the book, and it's foundational with how I work with people. And he said, Mysticism and spirituality by themselves are not enough. And from the integral framework, I thought that's the left quadrants, you know, that are the inner the upper left. Okay social action though and therapeutic caring are not enough. And I thought about that because I work with hospice volunteers and and they're so out of touch with themselves or I work with people doing justice work and it's kind of more right quadranted where they're very aware unaware of their interiors. So I felt like he was touching on those two. You know, I felt like I was seeing what was happening in my office with clients and with groups I was facilitating. He said nor is it enough to reach for both at the same time. The lost element in our lives is the force within myself that can attend to both of those movements in human nature within my own being, and then guide the arising of this force within my neighbor in a manner suited to his understanding, which felt like the stages. And then to communicate that idea has been the singular aim of this book. So I felt like there you have it. It's right there. You have inner and outer, the recognition of stages, the recognition that we, you know, we can shift states on the spot. So if I talk to a a business person coming in who has some suffering in his life, and I talk talking about higher stages, it's not going to be meaningful. But if we can use the Enneagram, he can see the psychological construct that's causing him suffering. We can learn a, what I call a pause practice, <laughs> a pause practice in the office, in the moment, using language that really is associated with his type or her type. I know their type, and we can start to, to do that, drop them inside and see what that core point of suffering is. Bring some awareness to it and give it a little bit of space. And then something starts to relax and they can actually start to taste the virtue. Within, you know, now if I've got somebody coming in and understanding the language of trauma is helpful. I've got somebody in and I've worked with women moving through prostitution and addiction. Their bodies were too compromised to even to relax. Even talk about the enneagram. You know, so I had to be aware of that. And sometimes just coming in in a present centered state could be useful and in, in just listening. So it's knowing where they are within those stages.
0: And Leslie, weren't you working with folks who were coming out of an evangelical churches or faith or something and moving on to the next thing? I thought that was fascinating.
1: That's been the new part. Of my teaching, which or my work, which I never, John, I never expected. My, you know, for your listeners, I was raised in the Catholic tradition, all right, which has a pretty strong contemplative um, arm of the tradition,
2: but well hidden. If
0: you look for it, yeah, it's
1: there. (laughs) You have to look very hard for it, and I learned about it when I when I went to grad school. But I was taught my my actually my remember my parish priest was a five. And he was a real intellectual. I, we had a great relationship and he was a real Jungian. So I started kind of coming into the whole notion that there, we actually had a psychological structure that with a, with a big old shadow in that structure that inhibited our capacity to, from the Christian perspective, is to embody the virtues of faith, hope, and love when I went into, the, into graduate school, and actually it was, I wanted to do some sort of practice because I had, I was having anxiety in my late thirties because my children were aging growing up and going into junior high and high school. And I wanted to do meditation. So I actually started listening to a tape of Jack Kornfield, the inner heart of meditation. And so I was listening to Buddhist practitioners to try to learn how to just calm myself under pressure. And it opened up this whole entire world inside of myself. And then when I got to grad school, discovered that there was actually a contemplative arm of my own tradition and started practicing centering prayer, still doing also, you know, the Buddhist practices that I had learned from Jack Cornfield, but also then doing the centering prayer, then meeting father Thomas Keating and Cynthia Bourgeau and all of the, the Christian contemplatives And so, what shot? So, I always felt like it was just some little pocket, you know, and the Enneagram Roger, I found really helpful, and John knows this, is because a lot of people that I work with have a real allergy to religion. You know, you have a lot of, especially when I started doing a lot of this work, the pedophilia scandal had just started. And we were starting to just see the real dysfunction, obviously, you know, in the church. And so, you know, people were coming to me with a real allergy to religion. So when I started with when I worked with an In integral life doing the coming home course, it was like, what do we do? what's the what's a portal for people coming from structural, which I would look at right quadranted, lower right quadrants, upper right quadrants of that external, you know, social action, you know, hierarchies and all of that. What's the bridge for the inward turn? And the Enneagram provided something a real map of what would happen inside when they would take that inward turn. Fast forward to five years ago, six years ago, and there was a book written for Christians called The Road Back to You by Ian Crone. And he was an author. He he, he didn't really know the Enneagram that well, but he partnered with a woman named Suzanne Stabile, who had been studying with Richard Rohr, who studied with my teacher, Helen Palmer. And he wrote a book about the Enneagram and it exploded. So the next thing I know, I'm getting all of these people either evangelicals tend to not stay with me a super long time. I kind of got a lot of ex-evangelicals or people exiting what we would call from the integral map, exiting um, blue, amber, can sometimes call it exiting a traditional understanding of religion moving, which I see, there's the inward turn happens at that, you know, more orange level of development where people start coming inside. And I was shocked by it. I did not expect it. And it's been really, I love that kind of work because, you know, they're confused, they're angry, there's so many allergies to religion, there's so many hotbed words that just activate people. And so the Enneagram was a portal of entry to something deeper and to contemplative practice.
0: Yeah. And everything was like spelled out, you know, when you're in that traditional thing, the world is the way the Bible and the preacher say it is, and there it is. And all of a sudden, that's not so anymore. And there's a a tremendous lostness. And God knows I went through that. So, But it can be a disaster. It can be absolutely a time of rebirth eventually, but it doesn't feel like that in the beginning. It feels just where am I tethered? You know, what is real? What is not real? I'm, I'm lost.
1: Exactly. And I have to give a lot of space for their anger and give a lot of space. For, because if I'm trying to convert somebody, that's not, and that's not, and that's actually, that's not my work. But my work is to just kind of follow the threads of where they are. And a lot of times they start reweaving it back to the whole. You know, that starts to happen on its own with contemplative practices.
0: Stay tuned to part two of our conversation with Leslie Hershberger as we delve into the Enneagram at even a deeper level and how to use it as a tool for understanding ourselves and transforming our world. Also, very important, at the end of part two, Leslie leads us in a guided meditation, which I think you'll find very powerful and work very well with what we've done so far. Today's episode was brought to you by iWake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do from John Roger and the Deep Transformation team.